you have your Bibles, again, I invite you to turn back to 2 Peter, uh, and we'll be looking at uh, chapter 1. I told the first service that uh, uh, we have lunch reservations at Afton Tavern for 1230, and I told them I didn't think we would have a problem making that. I just didn't know when we were going to have this service. So uh, we are actually in the second service. And we might need to call to Afton and let them know we might be a little late this morning to our lunch reservations. Uh, But uh, I am excited uh, to be here this morning and to uh, hopefully bring some truth that uh, we can hang our hat on this morning as our students are getting ready to leave. You know, it's incredible how time just passes by so quickly. I know moms and dads can agree with that, that uh, it was just yesterday uh, when you were cleaning their diapers, and now they're graduating high school and getting ready to go to college, and they're going to bring home all their laundry for you to wash. So, um, but it is incredible, and uh, my heart is moved in, in several different ways. Uh, one of just uh, thankfulness to be a part of their life, and, and then it's sad, uh, but it's also a joyous day, and it's a joyous occasion to honor them. Um, but today, we want to, to honor the one who made this day possible. And that is our Savior. We want to exalt His name. We want to bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. And um, this past weekend, uh, we uh, took our junior-senior beach retreat to Ocean Isle. And uh, most of the students here went with us. And it was a great retreat. And, and a lot of people say, are oh, you just going on another vacation? You know, when you go to Malawi, that's just another vacation. Yeah, well, yeah, it is a fun time at the beach. We do have a good time and all that. But we do get some work done. Uh, we do actually, we go over some, some lessons. We study together. And Chris Till actually brought a lesson just for the guys on being a gentleman. So girls, I hope you caught that last weekend that we were trying to be gentlemen even to the point that we were moved to get up and make breakfast one morning, right? And so it only took us two and a half hours to make pancakes, bacon, and clean the kitchen. The model of efficiency right there, let me tell you. I taught a lesson on the reliability of Scripture, and we may get to that uh, uh, later on today. Uh, we may not. I don't know. Here's my phone that has a, a clock on it, and it says 1127. Uh-oh. Uh, but then uh, Gene Malden told a story. His lesson was very emotional, you know, and uh, I want to share that story with you. He, uh, he uh, told all the seniors to, to come and, and sit at his feet. He had something really important that he wanted to, to tell them. And uh, he started out by saying, you know what, guys, this year has been a very tough year for me. I mean, things have happened in my life that have just been really hard. And uh, so uh, this story is very close to my heart, and I'm very emotional about it. And uh, he said, one morning I got up to, to run before I went into work. And uh, when you know, if you know Gene, he doesn't run a five mile, and he runs like 20 miles when he runs. And and so he uh, uh, finished this run, this 20-mile run, and he's at the crest of this hill, and he looks off into the distance, and he sees this eagle, and he's like, wow, that is an awesome thing. Not many people get to see an eagle that close, and he wanted to get his phone and go take a picture of it and send it to Mickey because Mickey just loves eagles, and, and, but he was uh, scared because, and even mad because there was a storm brewing. It was coming, and he was afraid that the eagle would be spooked by the storm. 
And sure enough, as he was walking toward the eagle, the storm came, and that eagle was spooked, and he thought to himself, man, I missed my opportunity. I missed my shot. But he said, that eagle, instead of flying off, came and it hovered right over my head. And we're sitting there, man, we are all engrossed in this story. We are all in. We're like, wow, that's awesome. And he said, you know what? It was like the Lord was telling me that during these hard times and during these rough times, you know, you need to mount up with wings like eagles and soar above your problems. And so he's telling this story to us, and he said, you know, and he picks up his guitar at this moment, and he says, you know what? I wrote a song. I wrote a song about this moment that it meant so much to me. And he started, he started strumming on the guitar lightly, and he said, you know, this is, this is what the eagle said to me. Caw-caw! 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 He had us hook, line, and sinker. We were all in, and then when he said that, we were just like, we just busted out laughing. But then Ben Thomas said, but what happened to the eagle? I don't know, Ben. You might want to go ask Gene what happened to the eagle. But uh, that story obviously was not true. And how in the world does this relate uh, to this morning's message? We are faced with so many false teachers that are out in the world today that we have got to guard ourselves against. And uh, this passage of Scripture in Second Peter is what uh, our student accountability groups have been studying for the last little while. And uh, it just so happens that uh, the second chapter of Second Peter is a definition of what it means to be a false teacher. So if you want to learn and if you want to know what a false teacher looks like, you turn into Second Peter chapter 2 and you read that. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we learn that the false teachers are trying to uh, say that the day of the Lord is not coming. They're scoffing at it. And so you've got 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is uh, uh, a lot of, 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 of just a false teacher, definition of false teacher. But in chapter 1, where our challenge is going to come from this morning, is a summation of truth, a summation of the gospel. A summation of grace. And that's what I want us to hang our hats on this morning. And there are four truths that I want us to look at this morning. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God to bless this time. Lord, uh, I have nothing to say other than what you say through me. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take the words and use them for your good, for your glory, for encouragement, for conviction that others uh, may come to know you as their Lord and Savior, uh, that those who know you as Lord and Savior would be drawn into a closer relationship with you. So, Lord, we give this time to you and ask that your will would be done and accomplished. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning, and the first truth that I believe that we can hang our hat on and rest uh, assured in is this, is that the truth is we've been saved by grace, by the righteousness of Christ. Verse 1 of our text says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two things I want you to notice about this. Number one is this, is that we have the same faith, and Peter is saying that we have the same faith 
as he does. Peter's saying, look, your faith at its core and at its foundation is just like mine. I mean, do we get that this morning? Do we understand the meaning of that this morning? We're talking about the man who looked into the eyes of Jesus and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. We're talking about the man who saw Jesus heal blinded eyes. We're talking about the man who saw Jesus raise people from the dead. We're talking about the man who actually walked on water and preached the day of Pentecost. And so we, we have the same kind of faith at the core of our being as the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter accomplished many great things for the kingdom of God. Many great things for the kingdom of God. But this message is not about Peter. It's about how Peter got saved and about how Jesus saves us by his righteousness. If we look at Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, why is that important? Why do we need to know that we have the same faith at our core as Peter? It is because Peter's faith and salvation depended not on him. It did not depend on anything that Peter did or Peter would do. Graduates, your faith, church, your faith does not depend on anything that you have done or will ever do. Your faith and my faith and Peter's faith solely depends upon the righteousness of Christ imputed in our life. You see, some folks have the crazy notion that they bring something to the table at salvation. They think they either bring their worth or their works or their talent or whatever the case may be. But we learn in Romans chapter 3 here that it is Christ's righteousness. It is His justification. It is His gift. It is He who is the propitiation for our sins. All to make much of His name. All to magnify the name of Jesus. All to exalt His own name. His love for us has nothing to do with our worth, our works, or our goodness, things that we've done, or things that we will do. Christ loves us and imputes His righteousness towards us because Christ is Christ. When we were in Malawi, um, using the bathroom was uh, quite uh, an adventure sometimes. Now, when we stayed at Camp Bethel, Robbie, King Robbie made sure that, uh, that we had a nice place to use the bathroom. But when we were en route to uh, either a school assembly or we were en route to uh, a, a village, uh, it wasn't like uh, we could stop off at the nearest QT and use the bathroom. Many times it was pulling in between two cornfields and saying, okay, girls, you got the left cornfield. Uh, Guys, you have the right cornfield. Have at it. 
And then maybe when we got to our, our place of ministry, uh, they would have a long drop. And this is what a long drop is. A long drop is, is just a, a, a hole in the ground. No seat, no nothing. Just a hole in the ground, and it's covered up usually by concrete or some kind of hard substance. And then about, I don't know, several feet down is a reservoir. So why in the world am I telling you a story about where we use the bathroom? Well, uh, also, while we were uh, in Malawi, we went to an orphanage. And um, it was the Good Samaritan Orphanage. And when we got to the orphanage, the uh, founder of the orphanage, Dr. Gentry, was holding a beautiful little boy who had just turned one. Just turned one. And, uh, but that's not where the story starts. You see, uh, and the little boy's name was Little Gentry. Uh, and, but the story is about how Little Gentry got to the Good Samaritan Orphanage. You see, way back when he was an infant, his mom decided that, that, that she didn't want him. And instead of taking him anywhere where someone would want him, uh, or putting him on the side of a street. She threw him down a long drop. We don't know how long little Gentry stayed in that long drop, but we know that authorities heard a baby crying, and, and, and just, just crying and crying and crying, and the authorities finally found out that this crying was coming from a long drop, and they looked out in this long drop, and they see this little boy. They busted through the concrete, and they fished that little boy out. But the stench and smell of the sewer was all over him, and they tried their best to clean him up. And after they cleaned him up, they taken him to this orphanage, and the orphanage took him in, and the orphanage gave him a little name because he didn't come with a birth certificate. They just called him Little Gentry. They gave him a new identity. They gave him a home to live in. They gave him brothers and sisters uh, uh, to love him. Do you get where I'm going with this? Little Gentry had nothing to do with being rescued. Little Gentry had nothing to do with being given a new identity. Little Gentry had nothing to do with being given a new name. He had nothing to do with his rescue at all. Church and graduates know that you can walk in the confidence of Christ because your behavior is not what makes Christ love you. Christ loves you and rescues you because Christ is love and he loves you to make much of his name and to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. We did nothing, nothing to deserve our salvation, but yet Christ has given that to us freely. One writer says, but God's love is different. The reason God's love you is not because he was smitten with your appearance, bowled over by your personality, knocked out by your good works, or swept away by the sheer genius of your talent. The explanation of God's love for you does not lie anything within you. It lies in God alone. God is love. He loves you because he loves you. 
The love of God in its explanation is its source. Only God is able to love the unlovely, the unskilled, the wounded, the inhibited, and even the rebel. Only God could love Abraham while he was still worshiping other gods. And only God still loves us in our worst moments. He goes on to say that over the years, I've had opportunity of trying to help people who have been struggling with the question, well, how could God love me? You see, the problem is that the question focuses all the attention on me. And when someone is depressed or if he is struggling to come to terms with a personal failure, then thinking about me is not very encouraging. Thankfully, the reason God loves me has nothing to do with me at all. The explanation lies in God. So if we can get our attention away from ourselves and focus our thoughts on God, it will not be long before we are rejoicing in His love and we will be exalting His name and we will be lifting high and magnifying the name of Christ who reached into the pit of our loan drop and pulled us out and saved us and cleaned us up and gave us a new identity, not because we were worth it, not because because of our works, because Christ is love. He loves you. He will always love you. The second truth this morning is that believers should grow. We've got to grow in the assurance of our salvation. When I see Brandon Cook, I can't help but think of a picture at Snowbird of Brandon in the sixth grade where he's about two and a half feet tall (laughs) with a long blonde rat tail, mohawk rat tail. And I'm like, where have the years gone? He's grown up. He's grown up. Just like we should naturally do in our faith, we should grow up in our faith that gives us the assurance of our salvation. There's one thing that we do not need to doubt this morning. And if you are doubting, I hope and pray that you come to have your, uh, your, your salvation in concrete. Because Peter says here, man, you can be sure that your home lies in heaven. I think so. I think I'm going to heaven. It's not good enough. Well, I hope so. I hope so. It's not good enough. God wants you to know that you have salvation, that your assurance is rested in His acts of righteousness and not your own. Starting in verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. The greatest assurance is this, is that we can know that we belong to the Lord Jesus and it's because of his love for us. But because he loves us and because we recognize that we have been rescued out of the long drop because of all that he has done for us, we then therefore make every effort to add to our faith the rest of these qualities that Peter talks about. The pursuit of Christ is what brings assurance. What does your pursuit look like this morning, church? 
What does your pursuit look like this morning, graduates? John MacArthur says, Assurance of one's gracious standing before God is not a small matter, but is actually the supreme blessing of the Christian experience. But we have so many people walking around doubting their salvation and not sure of of their home in heaven. They're guessing at it. Don't guess. Be sure. People lack assurance because they feel like, you know, that their, their sin has been too grievous. People feel like, okay, well, God can't forgive me because, you know, I can't forgive myself. My sin is beyond the cross of Calvary. Listen, there is no sin, no thought, no deed that is beyond the cross of Christ. Don't let that make you doubt. Some people lack assurance because they don't fully understand the gospel. They have the crazy notion that maintaining their salvation requires their effort plus God's. Salvation is secure as long as their behavior is good. It's not dependent on your behavior. It's not dependent on my behavior. It was never dependent upon Peter's behavior. It's not dependent upon your behavior. Some people lack assurance because they can't remember the exact moment in time that it happened, the, the gospel moment. You know, and we're guilty of that in the church. We, we put a whole lot of emphasis on, okay, well, I said a prayer, I raised my hand, I signed a card, I did this commitment, I did that. No, it's not anything that you did. It's what Christ has done for you. And when you realize what he has done for you, you are just in total and complete humility submitting to the obedience of Christ. It says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. But people lack assurance because they feel like they have, it has to do with them. People lack assurance because sometimes they just simply do not know and obey God's word. The word of God is so prevalent in our churches. I mean, we sit with it every Sunday on our laps and, and, and we bring it to church, but sometimes that's it. That's it. There, there's, there's no pursuit of Christ. There's no pursuit of holiness. There's no pursuit of the things of God outside the walls of this building. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Don't guess at your salvation. Know that it has been Christ who has driven you to the point of salvation and that he drives you through salvation. He saved us and he is sanctifying us. It is all about him. It is his work in our life. Because Peter lets us know and assures us that when we have assurance, we have a heart of gratitude. We have a life worth living that has greater purpose than ourselves, And we know that we have the peace that passes all understanding. We know that, that, that we've been passed from death to life and now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the assurance that knowing that our salvation is totally and completely dependent upon the work of Jesus in our life. Warren Wiersbe says, the growing Christian walks with confidence because he knows he is secure in Christ. It's not our profession of faith that guarantees that we're saved. It is our progression in faith that gives us that assurance. 
The person who claims to be the child of God but whose character and conduct give no evidence of spiritual growth is deceiving himself and headed for judgment. And he goes on to say the Christian who is sure of his election and calling won't stumble but will prove by consistent life that he is truly a child of God. He will not always be on the mountaintop but he will always be climbing higher. And if we do these things, if we display Christian growth, if we display Christian character in our daily lives, then we can be sure we are converted and will one day be in heaven. I want that to be our testimony. I want that to be your testimony. Third, the truth is that even the believer needs to be reminded of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves. Even believers need to remind themselves of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, Peter says in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So Peter's saying, I... Even though you know the gospel, I am going to remind you of the gospel. How many times as parents have we had to say and repeat ourselves to get our children to do something that we want them to do? Jay, clean your room. Jay, clean your room. Jay, clean your room. And you're just a broken record, you know. Da, da, da. Caroline, pick up your stuff. Pick up your stuff. Pick up your stuff. You know, it's, uh, we repeat ourselves over and over and over because we want our kids to get it. We want our kids to get it. I mean, I, I totally and completely understand now uh, my dad's uh, telling me, you know what, Kevin, if I've told you one time, I've told you a thousand. I mean, how many, how many of you have heard that before? How many of you have said that before? If I've told you one time, I've told you a thousand. It's because we want our kids and we want our people uh, uh, to, to get it. But you see, most of us believe that the gospel is just for lost people. But in reality, much of the epistles is reminding believers of the gospel. Matt Chandler in the explicit gospel says that Paul is just as concerned with Christians understanding the gospel as he is non-Christians understanding the gospel. Romans 1, 13 and 14 say this, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that you may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to Gentiles and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. A couple of things I want you to know about this verse. Number one is this, is that he addresses these people as his brothers. He does not address them as pagans. He does not address them uh, uh, as, okay, you, you, you worshipers of other false gods. He addresses them as brothers, as in brothers in Christ. And he says, I desire to reap a harvest among you. Well, what harvest does he want to reap among believers? What harvest does he want to reap among those who already know the gospel? What harvest is it that he wants to reap in this church this morning among us? You see, when we think of that word harvest, we think of a a crusade where many people come to faith in Christ. And that is true. That is a harvest. But a harvest amongst believers is this. It is that, that, that we would get, that we would get this whole thing about the gospel, that it's not about us. It's not the self gospel. It's always about Christ. And then that pushes us and makes us pursue with reckless abandon to be holy. That's what it means to reap a harvest among believers. 
Benjamin Warfield, a well-known theologian in the last century, said this. He says, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to Him or to God through Him ever alter. No matter what our attainments in Christian graces or in the achievements of Christian behavior may be, it is always by His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. There are two verb tenses in that couple verses right there. Two verb tenses. The gospel was received, past tense. And in it which you now stand, present tense. Just like we never earn God's approval in our salvation because it was His act and His act alone, we don't earn His approval now. Think about it. If our prayer life depended on God's approval of our life, when we, things are going good and, and, and we are obedient, we are quick to pray. But if we're going through a season of our life where we've been disobedient, and believe me, it's going to happen, I'll illustrate that in just a moment, we're going to not pray as fervently. We might even actually run from praying. But it's in those moments that we may not have been so good that we'll run from God because we did not earn his approval. We need to understand like Peter understood. He says, I'm going to remind you of the things that, were, that I was reminded of. I'm going to remind you of the things that I was reminded of. I, I did say earlier in, in the message that Peter was the man who looked into the face of Jesus and said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you walked on the water, that, that he preached the day of Pentecost. But Peter is also the one who, who, who took a sword and, and, and swiped the dude's ear off. You know, I'm sure Jesus stood back and said, oh, that was awesome, Peter. Great job. You know, I, I, don't, think, I don't think the Lord did that. Or, uh, you know, Peter is the same one who walked on the water, but he fell because he didn't have enough faith. Peter is the one who fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, can't you stay awake with me for an hour and pray? And Peter is also the one that denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. This is the same Peter who experienced the same grace that you have experienced, that I have experienced. And we've got to know and come to grips with the reality that we We'll struggle, and we will fail, and we will fall. Ty Cobb has a batting average. Uh, had. He's dead. 366. All-time leader in baseball. 366. And for time's sake, I want to give one illustration, but there's two more. Two more. That means for every 100 times he got up to bat, he got 36 hits. He was successful 36 times out of 100 but that also means that he was a failure 64 out of 100. I'm sure that when he got up to bat, you know, he wasn't thinking, boy, I can't wait to strike out now. The truth is he failed. The truth is 
Peter failed. The truth is that you and I will fail. And the truth is that you and I need to repeat the gospel over and over and over and over to us. Remind yourself of it. Not that it gives you a license for continued sinful patterns and failure, but that you have been afforded Christ's righteousness for his name's sake, and that will, that will drive you to a place of humility and obedience. We need to understand that Jesus is it. He's it. He's why we live. He's why we breathe. He's why we come to church. He's the reason for everything. Graduates, please don't lose sight of that. Church, please don't lose sight of that. And this morning in closing, I want us to to think about our life in light of the gospel. I want us to, to know that you know that you know that you know. I want you to be sure of your salvation. And if you are not sure, I couldn't think of a better moment in time than to make sure this morning. To know and understand that it is Christ's righteousness imputed on your life. And, and, you know, I believe so many people in the church today are satisfied with just making a commitment uh, or signing a commitment card and, and walking away and, and never have a pursuit of holiness or never have a desire for the things of God, never have a desire to read and study and understand His Word and be obedient to it. I'm afraid for that person. But my hope and my prayer is this, that, is, that, that we all in this room, we are able to walk out of this room knowing that our home is heaven. But maybe you are living in a pattern of sinfulness and that, that you just need to come and you want the assurance and, and, and you need to re- just repeat the gospel to yourself. Jesus, you, you love me, you gave yourself for me, you died for me, and I trust in that, Lord. I'm sorry, please forgive me. If that's you, whatever the Lord is, is dealing with your heart this morning, I ask that you, that you take care of business. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing our invitation. And, and whatever the Lord is dealing with you, you, you just be obedient to him. But I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, uh, we'll have our time of invitation. And after our time of invitation, uh, our graduates will process out, and then uh, our service will be concluded. Thank you so much for being here today. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you, God, that it is totally and completely dependent upon you and your righteousness that we can even have a right thought about you. God, I pray this morning that that we know and we understand what salvation is, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again, all to forgive me of my sin, and that his righteousness is imputed on my life not because of anything that I've done, but because God is great. I pray, Father, that that is is well heard in the lives of these graduates and that it is well heard in the lives of the people in this room and that you would have your will and way this morning in the lives of the people here. We thank you, Lord, and we bless your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.